Thank you very much for coming. <clears throat> I will be giving these lectures every month on the last Monday, except when otherwise uh, days otherwise chosen. The next two will be in March and the 26th, I think, and in April, one in March is on the man I used to work for, Congressman John Schmitz, whom I call Catholic Hero, happens to be my godfather. I worked for him for years. He was a great man, and I want to tell you about him. And his family will be here for that talk. In the following month, April, I will talk about the Emperor Charles V, the man who saved Christendom, the man who confronted Martin Luther face to face at the Diet of Worms and said a single monk must err if he goes against the opinion of all Christendom. So I hope you manage to come to those two talks. <clears throat> you learned in January why we should not speak of revolution as the origin of our republic. Now I want to explain to you why we should also not speak of the Protestant Reformation. If you are to reform something, namely in this case the Church of Christ, you must first of all love and honor it. You must not seek to destroy it. Though most Protestants today don't know it, the destruction of the Catholic Church was the declared objective of the first Protestants. They were rebels, not reformers. This is how Pope Leo X first spoke to Martin Luther. Quote, Mindful of the compassion of God, who desires not the death of the sinner, but that he be converted and live, we are ready to forgive the injury done to us and to the Holy See. We had decided to exercise the greatest possible indulgence, and so far as in our power lies, to induce the sinner to enter into himself uh, and to renounce the errors we have enumerated so that we may see him return to the bosom of the church and receive him kindly like the prodigal son of the gospel. We therefore exhort him and his followers through the love and mercy of our God and the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the human race was redeemed and our church founded and adjure them to cease troubling with their deadly errors the peace, unity, and truth of the church for which our Savior prayed so fervently to his Father. They will then, if they prove obedient, find us full of fatherly love and be received with open arms. End quote. This was how Luther answered the Pope in his pamphlets on the papacy in Rome in June 1820 and in his address to the Christian nobility of the German nation shortly afterward. Quote, now farewell, you unhappy, lost, and blasphemous Rome. The wrath of God has come upon you at last, as you have merited. For in spite of all the prayers that have been said for you, you have become worse each day. We would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. Let us forsake her, then, to become a dwelling place of dragons, evil spirits, goblins and witches, and her name to be an eternal confusion, filled to the brim as she is with the idols of greed, with traitors, apostates, thieves, and sinners, and an infinity of other monsters, something new in the way of a pantheon of iniquity. If we punish thieves with the gallows, robbers with the sword, and heretics with fire, why should we not assail all the more with arms, these masters of perdition, these cardinals, these popes, these dregs of the Roman Sodom, who have been corrupting the Church of God without intermission, and wash our hands in their blood? Is that the language of a reformer who wants to make his church better, or is it the language of a rebel, a traitor, and a would-be destroyer? By examining this one incandescent passage of Luther, you can see one why what he did 
with no reformation. In a letter to his former professor of philosophy at the University of Erfurt in Germany, Jodeke Stuttfetter, Luther revealed his revolutionary purpose as early as May 1518. Quote, My firm belief is that the reform of the church is impossible unless the ecclesiastical laws, the papal regulations, scholastic theology, philosophy, and logic as they presently exist are thoroughly uprooted. End quote. Such uprooting, he said, had now become his fixed purpose, quote, a resolution from which neither your authority, though it is certainly of the greatest weight to me, nor that of any others can turn me aside, end quote. This is one of the most important of the thousands of letters Luther wrote during his lifetime. It reveals that in May 1518, less than a year after he began the Protestant revolt by nailing his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg in November 1917, he was essentially committed to the destruction of the church to which he belonged, though he had not yet proceeded to total defiance of all church authority. It shows his revolutionary temper, his purpose to uproot rather than simply to reform, which is the goal of every revolutionary. It provides our first evidence that the upheaval to come was rightly to be called a revolt or a revolution and not a reformation. It also shows Luther in the act of coldly and deliberately breaking a bond whose quality and strength only the dedicated teacher and his former student know, the love and loyalty which flow from their memories of each other. Luther wrote this letter just before completing his defense in Latin of his position on indulgences. On this, for once, Luther was right, as was later confirmed by the Council of Trent when it forbade granting an indulgence in return for a money payment. In a cover letter that the Pope sent with this document, Luther flatly and insultingly declared, quote, I do not care what pleases or displeases the Pope. He's a man like other men. There have been many Popes inclined to errors, vices, and even very strange things, end quote. In attacking the infallible papacy, Luther was striking at the very heart of the Church, and he knew it. On December 11, 1518, Luther wrote to an Augustinian friend, Wenceslas Link. This important letter reveals that Luther knew exactly where he was going and was pushing steadily and rapidly along the way. Quote, the cause has not yet commenced in earnest, and much less can these gentlemen from Rome look to see it in the end. I shall send my little works to you, so that you may see if I am right in surmising that the Antichrist, whom Paul describes, resides at the Roman court. I think I can prove that he did prove today that he is worse than the Turks. End quote. Already, Luther was prepared to call the Pope the Antichrist. This is not the doctrine of a reformer. In Germany, the leadership of the loyal Catholic <clears throat> campaign against Luther was assumed by his opponent in the famous disputation of Leipzig, a genius named Johann Meyer, who called himself Eck for his town of residence, would enter Heidelberg University at the age of 12, and obtained his master's degree in theology from the University of Tübingen at the age of 15. Becoming a doctor of theology at 34, two years before Luther. It soon became apparent to Eck that he had been given these extraordinary intellectual gifts to combat the new heresy. He began by showing that Luther's ideas essentially followed and echoed those of the notorious Czech heretic Jan Hus, 
who had thrown Germany into chaos in the past century and had been condemned by the Council of Constance, which had reunited Christendom in the early 15th century when it was divided by the Great Western Schism, which produced three popes at the same time. Great Western Schism is the subject of a later lecture in this series. When Eck denounced Luther as a Hussite, Luther had to admit it. So he was now backed into a corner and had to deny the authority of the Council of Constance, confirmed by the Pope, which council was revered by all Christendom. His revolutionary purpose stood revealed. John Eck drew himself up, looked straight into Luther's commanding black eyes, and said, quote, I tell you, honored Father, if you say that a council properly convoked can err and has erred, you are for me a heathen and a publican. That remains the only truly Catholic response to Martin Luther for all the recent talk about a reconciliation of the two religions. The lines were being drawn for the mighty struggle to preserve the unity of Christendom, which was to continue for more than a hundred years. One essential fact about that struggle must always be remembered. Wherever and whenever they were in power, the Protestants always abolished the mass, outlawing it. The Protestants who present themselves as defenders of religious liberty never permitted religious liberty to Catholics. Luther began this when he stopped the saying of Mass in Wittenberg, the first German city of which he gained control on November 17, 1524. He condemned the Mass with his usual violence of language as, quote, blasphemy, madness, and a lie, end quote, which was, quote, worse than chast- unchastity, murder, and robbery, end quote. That Christmas of 1524, for the first time in the history of Wittenberg since his conversion in Roman days, no Mass was said on the birthday of Christ the Lord. Having recently experienced the 2006 Christmas since Jesus first came to earth, we should keep this always in mind in evaluating and judging Martin Luther. One of Luther's successors, the Protestant revolutionary John Knox in Scotland, said he would rather see a foreign invading force landing than the mass returning to Scotland. So did these so-called reformers regard the central rite of the church, inaugurated by Christ in person at the Last Supper. In England, they denied the mass to Catholic Queen Mary Tudor, Emperor Charles' cousin and Queen Isabel's granddaughter, bringing from Charles this eloquent protest to the English ambassador. Quote, Ought it not to suffice you that you spill your own souls, but that you have a mind to force others to lose theirs too? My cousin the princess is evilly handled among you. Her servants are plucked from her, and when she still cried to have mass, she was ordered to forsake her religion, in which her mother, her grandmother, and all her family have lived and died. In July 1517, just three months before his public challenge to the church in Wittenberg, Luther preached a sermon in Dresden, the capital of Ducal Saxony, declaring that, quote, the mere acceptance of the merits of Christ ensured salvation, and that nobody who possessed this faith need doubt of this of salvation, end quote. Thenceforth, Protestants felt assured of their salvation. This conviction has come down even to the present, which is why so-called evangelical Christians will tell you to this day that I am saved, and ask you if you can say the same. Duke George of Saxony was present for the sermon in which Luther made this statement. The noblest lay leader in Germany during these shattering years, his integrity praised by Protestant and Catholic historians alike, 
who had been trained in theology and prepared for a church vocation before the death of his elder brother made him heir to the dukedom. Duke George, who had probably never met Luther before, took his measure that night. Looking ahead to a hundred years of rebellion, which would convulse all Germany and all Europe, Duke George said, quote, I would give a great deal not to have heard this sermon, which would only make the people presumptuous and mutinous, end quote. Presumption and mutiny do not flow from reformation, but rather from rebellion. Undergirding and permeating all of Luther's other personal qualities was one he shares with all his tree makers for good and ill, a stupendous power of will. When Martin Luther fixed on a goal, it seemed that nothing could stop him from reaching that goal. Contemporaries noted especially the brilliance of his black eyes set deep in his face, which could glow with inspiration and, or burn with anger, dominating and attracting his followers and cowing his adversaries. How terrible was Luther's anger can be seen both in his characteristic violence of expression, of which the quotation given at the beginning of this lecture is only one of the most ferocious examples, and in his remarkable ability to dominate an audience, which lends so sharp an edge to the drama of his confrontations with John Eck at Leipzig in 1519 and with Emperor Charles V at Worms in 1521. On October 24, 1517, Luther's 95 Theses, nailed to the door of the Wittenberg Palace Church, denounced the granting by the Church of indulgences, remitting time and punishment in purgatory for the soul receiving the indulgences in the specific context of donating money to the Church. He declared that such indulgences were not recognized by God and that the Church had no treasury of graces from which to issue them. Luther had told no one of his intention to make this challenge. He sent a copy of the 95 Theses to Archbishop Albert of Mainz, who had approved the granting of indulgences to help raise money for the building of the new St. Peter's Church in Rome. Preached by a Dominican, the indulgences were preached by a Dominican monk named Tetzel. The slogan attributed to Tetzel, possibly but not certainly authentic, uh, does regrettably represent the tone of much of the preaching of indulgences in Germany at this time. So about das Geld in Kassen klingt, die Seele aus dem Feuerfeier springt, which means as soon as the coin in the box clinks, the soul of purgatory's fire springs. The sale of indulgences was indeed a great evil, corrupting the church. It was later banned by the Council of Trent. On this one point, Luther was indubitably correct. Archbishop Albert forwarded the 95 Theses to Rome in December 1517 with a request that Luther be silenced, but he also called for less publicity and showmanship in the granting of indulgences and a tighter control over the funds collected by this means. Pope Leo X received Archbishop Albert's letter in January 15 and responded with a mild request to Gabriella della Volta Vicar General of the Augustinians, the order to which Luther belonged, to have Luther admonished. Della Volta passed on the Pope's request to Johann Staupitz, Luther's immediate superior in the Augustinian order, who was a strong supporter of his. Therefore, it's not surprising that no admonition is reported, though Luther learned immediately of the Pope's message. He began to prepare a written defense of his position on indulgences, while at the same time asking Elector Frederick of Saxony, his sovereign, for protection in general 
and specifically for a safe conduct for traveling to and from uh, the upcoming triennial Augustinian Chapters Convention at Heidelberg. Frederick replied at once, giving Luther the safe conduct in a flattering letter of recommendation and writing a stop it's directing him to make sure that Luther was not carried off or restrained. At the Heidelberg Augustinian Chapters Convention, Luther supported and probably inspired a resolution denying freedom of the will. Quote, free will in man, after Adam's fall, is merely a name, and therefore no free will at all, at least as regards to the choice of good, or it is a captive and the servant of sin, not as though it did not exist, but because it is not free except for what is evil. All his life, Martin Luther suffered from scrupulosity. He had a deep psychological need to avoid taking moral responsibility for his acts. That is why he welcomed and taught the doctrine of assured salvation, that the grace of Christ did not improve men, but merely covered over their sins, to use his own ugly simile, quote, like a dung heap covered with snow, end quote. Denial of free will served the same psychological purpose. The early, <coughs> the early emergence of Luther's concern for personal protection from the Elector of Saxony calls for a brief explanation of the complex political situation in Germany at that time, which Luther and his friends skillfully used to thwart the church and to prevent Catholic rulers from ever bringing him to trial before the church. Germany in the 16th century was a patchwork quilt of more than 200 legally sovereign states, some of minute size, like Liechtenstein, their only survivor on the map of Europe today some almost large enough to be significant continental powers like Brandenburg, Prussia in the northeast and Bavaria in the southwest, some the temporal possessions of bishops like the papal states in Italy and most interlaced with their neighbors by serpentine borders and dotted with enclaves from other sovereignties. Two excellent examples of this crazy quilt were the two halves of the ancient province of Saxony, one ruled by an elector and the other by a duke. Elector Frederick was always a squatter and protector of Luther. Duke George was a rock-solid Catholic. If Luther had been on the faculty of the University of Leipzig in Duke George Saxony, rather than on the faculty of the University of Wittenberg in Elector Frederick Saxony, the whole history of Christendom and its cleaving would have been different. Duke George would have turned Luther over to the church and to the emperor on request, and he would have been little more than a footnote in history. <clears throat> on such small chances make a strict turn. <clears throat> One of the main reasons this anarchy of German sovereignties had been allowed to continue so long was the presence of a Holy Roman Emperor to whose title was often added of the German nation who was viewed as possessing an overarching appellate authority though he did not govern all Germany directly. But under German law, the emperor had no direct authority to bring into line princes who were heretics or protected heretics. Nevertheless, by immemorial tradition, the Holy Roman Emperor protected all Christians from the infidel without and the heretic within. In June 1518, the papal procurator made a formal charge of heresy against Luther, not for condemning the granting of indulgence for money, which the church itself was later to condemn, 
but for denying the existence of the Treasury crisis and for questioning the authority of the Pope. In early July, Luther was summoned to appear in Rome for trial within 60 days. He responded with characteristic defiance, saying he would not accept excommunication even if the Church decreed. On July 25th, he reiterated that defiance, along with references to eternal predestination, and in another sermon before Duke George of Saxony and his court. Shouting matches broke out afterward between Luther and the professors defending scholastic theology, which Luther harshly attacked. Undoubtedly, the entire academic brawl deepened Duke George's concern about the damage Luther was already doing and the much greater damage he was capable of doing. One wonders if he might have communicated such thoughts to the aging Emperor Maximilian. For on August 5th, that potentate, light-minded and erratic though he was, not otherwise known for spiritual discernment, but still the guardian of Christendom from the infidel and the heretic, wrote to Pope Leo X, saying that Luther's doctrines, quote, if not strenuously opposed, would imperil the unity of the faith, and private opinion would take the place of traditional dogma. And, quote, exactly that was to happen in the Protestantism that Luther launched and that, quote, out of love for the unity of the faith, he would support any measures the Pope might take against Luther, end quote. On August 23rd, 1518, correctly concluding that Luther was not going to come to Rome for trial in response to his summons, Pope Leo X ordered Cardinal Kajan, his legate in Germany, to declare Luther a notorious heretic and bring him by arrest if necessary to the city of Augsburg, where the German diet a kind of parliament including both bishops and noblemen, was meeting. If Luther did not recant at Augsburg, Cajetan was to convey him to Rome for trial. Otherwise, Luther was to be excommunicated as a heretic and all temporal authorities ordered to assist in apprehending him. Any who would not would also be excommunicated and had domains placed under interdict, which means closing all the churches. The Pope's strongest weapons were thereby deployed against Martin Luther. Pope Leo X was <coughs> not in the best position to use these weapons and to gain the beings of authority in Germany where anti-clericalism had been rampant for the past century, century. At this time, the church in Rome had become deeply corrupt, as every German knew, for since their close relations with neighboring Italy brought them into frequent contact with it and as the great papal historian Ludwig von Pastor frankly admits. Several recent popes, notably Alexander VI Borgia, had given grave scandal by their personal lives. Alexander Borgia had at least seven illegitimate children whom he publicly acknowledged as his, as well as by conducting many of their public affairs in the same manner as temporal princes. Leo himself was a member of the ruling Medici family of Florence, and though personally chaste, was famous or infamous for his open court and entertainments. For example, his lavish dinners featuring such dishes as peacock's tongues, even though Leo himself did not eat them. His often frivolous attitude toward his papal responsibilities was summed up in his public comment to his brother Giuliano on his election as Pope. Quote, God has given us a papacy, now let us enjoy it. Even the most loyal Catholics did not think of Pope Leo X as a spiritual leader. It has always been church teaching that the authority of any church office 
is not affected by the personal sins and shortcomings of the man who holds it. This is not a doctrine easy for men to accept fully, especially in the face of a propagandist of the shattering power of Martin Luther. In fact, the course Pope Leo X followed with regard to Luther was remarkably wise, fully canonical, prudent, deliberate, and necessary. St. Bias X or John Paul II could hardly have done better. But as men have known since the fable of Isa, a poor reputation hinders belief even when a man speaks nothing but truth. Immediately upon receiving his difficult instructions, Cardinal Cachan contacted Elector Frederick, Luther's sovereign and protector, and urged him not to, quote, disgrace the good name of his ancestors, end quote, by supporting a heretic. Frederick responded that Luther had not yet been proved a heretic to his satisfaction. The Pope's declaration was not enough for him. He refused to arrest Luther and send him to Rome. On October 12th, Luther and Cardinal Kajdan met. Kajdan specifically directed Luther to recant two of his positions. One, that the Church did not possess a treasury of graces from Christ and the saints from which to dispense indulgences, and two, that the sacraments of the Church are efficacious only by faith and not by their own operation. The second position was fundamental to Luther's whole case, and he would not give it up. In explaining why these propositions were heretical, Kajdan relied on the angelic doctor for much of his argument. Kajdan was a great authority on St. Thomas Aquinas. Luther despised St. Thomas Aquinas and so. When Martin Luther despised someone with his searing, blistering tongue, he made it viciously clear. Kajdan cited the bull Unigenitus by Pope Clement VI, affirming the doctrine of the treasury of graces. Luther then condemned this papal bull, withdrawing his previously stated willingness to accept papal definitions and presented a written defense of his position based solely on scripture. Though saying he would abandon his position, if Pope Leo X pronounced him in error. He later said that his friends had persuaded him against his will to insert this concession. Gadgetan rightly did not believe him, and was so incensed by Luther's diatribes against St. Thomas Aquinas, to whom he is devoted, that most uncharacteristically he began shouting at him. Luther replied even more loudly, the man did not live who could outshout Martin Luther, and Cajetan dismissed him with, quote, go and do not return until you're ready to recant. Shocked by the violence of this encounter, Luther's Augustinian superior Staupitz urged him to apologize to Kajetan, and for once in his life, Luther actually did apologize. He wrote to Kajetan saying that he had, quote, spoken too violently and disrespectfully against the Pope, for which he asked pardon and promised to mend, end quote. He said he would keep silent on indulgences until the Pope gave his decision on the question if his adversaries did likewise. In explaining why Luther's two propositions were heretical, Kajetan relied on the angelic doctor, on whom he was a great authority for much of his argument. Luther had no use for St. Thomas Aquinas, as he made very clear to Kajetan. When Luther disliked someone, he was accustomed to denouncing him with vehement and sometimes obscene words. Still, Luther refused to recant anything that he had said, and went out of his way to reiterate his contempt the authority of St. Thomas Aquinas. Kajetan, probably believing the whole letter insincere, did not reply. 
On October 25th, Kajitan again urged Elector Frederick to send Luther to Rome, or at least to dismiss him from the faculty of the University of Wittenberg. Frederick sent the letter to Luther, who replied warning that action against him would lead to the destruction of the University of Wittenberg, of which Frederick was inordinately proud. Luther added that his enemies wanted to make Frederick play pilot, therefore implicitly putting himself in the place of Christ. On December 9th, the Pope sent Kajitan a bull on the doctrine of indulgences, declaring that by the power of the keys given to St. Peter, the Pope could remit both the guilt and punishment due for sins and draw on the treasury of the merits of Christ and his saints. And that all must teach this under pain of excommunication. This document did not mention Luther's name, but did, in general, refer to Germans who had been disseminating false doctrine about indulgences. Luther replied that by the end of the month, with a flat rejection of the authority of this bull, giving the lie to all he had said to Cardinal Cachan and others, promising to accept the Pope's decision on this issue. He appealed from this decision, embodied in the bull, to a future general council though such appeals had been prohibited by canon law since the conciliarist heresy of the preceding century. Elector Frederick had forbidden Luther to publish this reply, but Luther defied his sovereign as he defied the Pope. For once, Frederick wavered in his support of Luther and suggested that he would prefer him to leave Saxony, but was not ordering him out. Luther did not leave. On December 8th, Frederick wrote to Cadstan, saying that no one in his lands had found Luther's teaching on indulgences to be heretical. Five days later, Cardinal Cadstan published the papal bull of November 9th endorsing indulgences. He gained little support in Germany because of the great unpopularity of the fundraising campaigns there, such as Tetzel's, which used indulgences as a centerpiece. Elector Frederick wrote again to Cardinal Cadstan, saying that he was still not convinced that Luther was truly a heretic. Early in December 1518, Luther had joined one of his earliest and most persistent critics, the brilliant Dominican John Eck, in asking Duke George to approve a disputation at the University of Leipzig on intelligences, penance, and freedom of the will between Eck and Andreas Rudolf Bodenstein, who called himself Karlstadt, a follower of Luther and his colleague at the University of Wittenberg. At this point, Luther, despite his growing rebellion against the Pope, had not yet lost respect for everyone who disagreed with him, as he was soon to do. He still respected Eck, as most scholars in Germany did. They were both doctors of theology. Appointed professor of theology at the University of Ingolstadt in Bavaria, within two years, Eck was his vice-chancellor, along with being pastor of a parish and a canon at the Cathedral of Eichstätt. A geographer and philosopher, as well as a theologian, ex scope of knowledge, mastery of language, and incisive analytical mind, made him probably the best debater in Germany. Eck had been one of the first to write against Luther on the issue of indulgences, identifying immediately the similarities between Luther's arguments and those of the heretic John Huss. Eck was a man of compassion, as well as capital orthodoxy, and no man of compassion 
can believe in absolute predestination. In answer to Carl Sat, Eck had written, quote, God cannot withhold his grace from one who does the best he can, end quote. Not does not, cannot. God's own loving nature makes it impossible for him to impose damnation on any soul. At the end of the year 1518, Eck stated 12 theses that he was prepared to defend at the Leipzig disputation. They criticized Luther's teaching on indulgences, penance, and purgatory, though without mentioning Luther by name, to say nothing of personally abusing him as Luther liked to abuse his opponents. Eck's style and controversial writing was rarely disfigured by the personal attacks and obscenity, all too characteristic of polemic in that age. Eck's twelfth thesis firmly proclaimed the Pope's supreme authority in the church as successor of Peter and vicar of Christ. Luther would not find this opponent easy to overawe, insult, stare down, or shout down. Indeed, by the end of 1518, Eck seems to have committed his life to the exposure and destruction of the heresy of Martin Luther that was to cleave Christendom. He spent most of the rest of his life trying, and every Catholic who understands what Eck did thinks he succeeded in debate. But unfortunately for mankind, such issues are not usually settled by rational argument, however cogent. The Protestant revolt won ultimately on the battlefield in the defeat of the Spanish Armada of Philip II of Spain and in the Thirty Years' War of Germany, where Protestantism prevailed by the military genius of Gustav Adolf, the King of Lutheran Sweden. On June 22nd, Luther published a pamphlet against papal supremacy in support of the thesis he was prepared to defend against Eck. In it, he said, quote, the primacy of the Pope was set up to check heretics and the schematics, but the decrees and proofs which have been used to support it lack any foundation in Scripture, end quote. The obvious citation of Matthew 16, 18, 19, he responded with the claim that faith, not Peter, was the rock on which the church was built. And exegesis so absurd, especially in view of the fact that Simon was at that moment given the name Peter, meaning rock, which had never before been used as a personal name that not even today's highly permissive, permissive scripture scholars defended. Two days later, several wagon loads of Lutherans arrived in Leipzig, including Luther, Karlstadt, the rector of the University of Wittenberg, which Luther now dominated, and the able young Greek professor Philip Melanchthon, who was to be in many ways Luther's successor. Luther's friend Johann Lang and others, with about 200 armed students as a bodyguard for the Lutherans, In front of St. Paul's Church, the wagon-carrying Karlstadt tipped over, dumping him on the ground. Bishop Adolf of Merseburg had posted a proclamation prohibiting the disputation from taking place, but Duke George directed that it proceed. Ground rules for the disputation were drawn up. In the morning of June 27th, the faculty of the University of Leipzig marched in procession to the Church of St. Thomas, where Mass was sung with a twelve-voice choir and the procession, now with banners and trumpets, went from the hall to Duke George's ancient castle of Pleissenburg, hung with splendid tapestries and protected by a substantial guard. Eck's desk was decorated with a tapestry showing St. George slaying the dragon, 
while Carl Sands and Luther's desk had tapestries of St. Martin, on whose feast day Luther was born. Professor Peter Moselanus gave an introductory speech recalling other famous theological debates in the history of the Church, such as St. Paul's with St. Peter and St. Jerome's with St. Augustine, and urged the disputants to remember that all Christendom was hanging on their words. The musicians played Come Holy Ghost three times. Then, after a break for dinner, the debate itself began. X spoke first, a tall and imposing man with a strong, gravelly voice, the summit of his powers at age 33, full of energy, clear and composed, with an immense stock of authorities and quotations at his fingertips. He soon made it evident that Karlstadt, short and sallow, with a weak and wavering voice and a large stack of books through which he had to leave before answering Eck, was not nearly a match for him. Karlstadt denied that the will had any part in salvation. In computation, Eck cited St. Bernard of Clairvaux and other fathers of the Church and the common sense of mankind. After four days, most of the spectators saw Eckers prevailing. On June 29th, Luther spoke, not as part of the disputation, but as a sermon on the feasts of St. Peter and Paul, using it as an occasion for denying papal primacy, interpreting, quote, the gift of the keys to Peter as conferring no personal power or privilege, but as an office to administer the church, end quote. Luther's disputation with Eck began in the afternoon of July 4th. Shorter and less bulky a man than Eck, Luther was equally articulate, with an equally strong voice, an equally confident manner, dominating his audience with his black fault and eyes, contemptuous and insolent on the attack, yet showing scholarship and scripture to match Eck's. He began immediately debating Luther's view of papal primacy. Drawing on his encyclopedic knowledge, Eck could see that the doctrines Luther was now propounding were essentially identical with those taught by the condemned, heretic, the condemned heretics and rebels John Wycliffe and John Huss in the 14th and 15th centuries. He also knew there was no better place to expose this link than here at the University of Leipzig, founded by Bohemian Germans who had fled for their lives from the Hussite heretics, where people still remembered Czech raids during the Hussite Wars of the last century. The consequences of the heresy of Huss were a vivid reminder of the consequences of allowing a new heresy to take root, as Luther's was to do on a scale Huss never dreamed of. So the next morning, Eck charged Luther with reviving the heresies of Wycliffe and Huss and asked him if he thought they had been justly condemned. Luther does not seem to have yet realized the virtual identity of his views with theirs. And well knowing the opprobrium which attached to their names, he furiously denied any link, but would not retreat from any of his positions. By afternoon, Luther realized the brilliant Eck attracted and felt constrained to say uh, that the Hussite propositions condemned at the Council of Constance, quote, are plainly very Christian and evangelical, which it is not possible for the Church to to George knew exactly what that meant. He stood up in the audience and shaking his head and planting his hands on his hips, roared out a plague on it. Eck cried out in a mighty voice that Luther was defending us and had spoken against the Council of Constance, which had reunited the Church of Christendom and Christendom a century before and revered by almost every Catholic. Luther shouted an equal volume, quote, I protest before you all, 
the excellent doctor is speaking to us about me is an impudent liar. The next day, Luther renewed his protest against being charged as a heretic, denied that the Council of Constance had condemned Huss's denial of the Roman primacy, only saying that the papacy was not established by Christ and that Matthew 16, 18, 19 did not prove it. Eck replied devastatingly that the Council of Constance had specifically declared that anyone denying the Catholic understanding of Matthew 16, 18, 19 was a heretic. Whether he had not known that or forgotten it in the heat of the debate, Luther now had no choice but to deny the authority of the Council of Constance, confirmed by the Pope, leaving no final authority in the Church at all. His revolutionary purpose stood revealed. John Eck had made his point and proved his case. I can tell you that not only as an historian, but as a former debater and debate judge. After that, there was really little more to be said. When the disputation was over, Duke George called in Luther to confer with him alone. He warned Luther that the Bohemian heretics, the former Hussites, were becoming his followers and that he was bringing confusion to many hearts. Duke George probably urged Luther to desist from his assault on the church before it was too late. But Eck had now taken Luther's full measure and knew that it was already too late for reconciliation. There remained only the defense of Christendom. On July 22nd, a week after the disputation, Eck wrote to Elector Frederick of Saxony, summarizing what had been said at Leipzig, telling him that Luther had described many of Huss's propositions as Christian and evangelical and denied papal primacy, reminding him of his sacred obligation to Christ, to the Christian faith, and to his own land, to protect the faith against Luther's errors, at least by burning Luther's books which spread them. Elector Frederick did no more than pass the letter on to Luther for reply. The lines were being drawn for the mighty struggle to preserve the unity of Christendom, which was to continue for more than a hundred years. Again, I remind you that not only doctrinal orthodoxy was at stake in that struggle, but also the mass, which the Protestants would not allow the Catholics to have. In the first years of that struggle, a vital role was marked out for the young man and in line to become the temporal head of Christendom, the Holy Roman Emperor of the German nation, Charles V, the subject of my lecture in April. When Luther tacked his 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door, this young man was only 17 years old and just inherited the kingdom of Spain, which the Catholic dedication and moral integrity of Queen Isabel, the political genius of King Ferdinand, and the New World and the Americas opened by Christopher Columbus had just made the greatest power in the world. He was the son of Ferdinand and Isabel's daughter, Juana, and of Maximilian's only son, Philip. So Charles was the great Queen Isabel's grandson. Now Philip was dead, and Juana was insane, and Charles was the heir apparent to his grandfather's father. Charles was the man who saved Christendom from Martin Luther. He met Luther face to face at the Diet of Worms, saying, quote, A single monk must err if he go against the opinion of all Christendom, and committing his life to his, its preservation, a commitment he magnificently fulfilled, as we shall see in April. Emperor Charles V was to prove once more in this cockpit of history that men and women, not impersonal forces, are trans, make history. In May, Luther published a pamphlet provocatively entitled Of the Baptism of Rome. 
In this pamphlet, he expressed shocking, the shocking thought that he had long played with, that the Pope was, quote, the Antichrist of whom the whole scripture speaks, end quote. In June, he published two more pamphlets against the Pope, counterattacking two defenders of papal primacy, the German Alveld and the Italian Mazzolini, known from his native city as Priorius. In his pamphlet against Alveld, Luther again called the Pope the Antichrist, and for the first time used the phrase describing papal Rome, which was later to be repeated by generations of Protestants, the whore of Babylon. Luther denied that any pope had possessed, quote, the love of Christ demanded of those who are to perform the shepherd's service, end quote. The malignant absurdity of denying the holiness not merely of some popes, but of all of them since St. Peter, including Sixtus II, the martyr of the Mass and the catacombs, St. Leo the Great, St. Gregory the Great, St. Leo the Ninth, and St. Peter Celestine, the transcendent goodness of all of whom, having recognized by every Christian who knew of them and what they had done, casts a baleful light on the depths into which Luther was now sinking. Less and less could Luther possibly merit being called the leader and founder of the Reformation. Luther's pamphlet against Priorius included the appalling invective quoted earlier, in which he called upon the nobles of Germany to attack cardinals and popes and wash their hands in their blood. It ended, quote, I have published and I do declare, basing on the words of Peter and of Christ, that if the ladies, the bishops, and all of the loyal followers do not admonish, arraign, and accuse the erring pope, whatever may be his crimes, and hold him as a heathen, they are all blasphemers in the way of the way of truth and deniers of Christ, and are with the pope to be eternally damned. I have spoken. No wonder he wrote to his superior Spalatin two weeks after these blazing broadsides were published, quote, I have cast the die. I now despise the rage of the Romans as much as I do their favor. I will not reconcile myself to them for all eternity, nor have anything to do with them. Let them condemn and burn all that belongs to me. In return, I will also do as much to them. Otherwise, I could not kindle the fire which is to condemn and burn before the eyes of the world the whole papal system, that learning and hydra, hydra of heresy. Then there will be an end to the show of humility, which proves so fruitless, end quote. Here we have Luther's direct statement that his purpose is to destroy the church, not merely to reform it, and to make a rebellion which would divide Christendom forever. We should take the man and his word. From the forge of this overmastering wage was struck Luther's bloody appeal the Christian nobility of the German nation, which we have already quoted. In this appeal, he adjured the emperor, princes, and noblemen of Germany to reject the Pope utterly, since most popes, quote, had been without faith, perjurers, traitors, and villains, end quote, who had made, quote, a devil's nest in Rome, end quote. All Christian men, Luther claimed, are priests with an equal right to interpret and expound scripture, and church councils should be summoned not by popes and bishops, but by temporal rulers. Luther called for the abolition of holy days, pilgrimages, fasts, canon law, endowed masses, ecclesiastical punishments, and clerical celibacy, and for the gradual elimination of religious orders and vows. He specifically included new emperor Charles V in his appeal and seemed to believe 
that Charles might respond favorably to him. Aunt Luther would learn how totally he had misjudged young Charles. If Charles V had done as Luther hoped, he had easily destroyed Christendom. But God sustained Charles, and so he saved Christendom from Luther. It would be destroyed. In April, we will see how he was able to do that. As Luther passed age 60, near the end of his destroying life, he began to have regrets. He could not rid himself of the reproach of his conscience that he was personally responsible for all the disasters, spiritual and physical, which had come upon Germany in the wake of his teaching in the past 28 years. He wrote, quote, Who among us would have thought of preaching as we had done if we could have foreseen how much misery, corruption, scandal, blasphemy, ingratitude, and wickedness would result from it? The thought arose in me, Thou art the sole author, sole author of all this movement. But, <coughs> but the heroic virtue to admit and confess his sins, to try to make recompense, the heroic virtue that Danton, murderer and revolutionary, displayed at the height of the reign of terror in the French Revolution, was not in Martin Luther the rebel. Luther convinced himself was coming from the devil rather than from God. In March 1545, Luther published his last pamphlet. It was entitled Against the Pontificate at Rome Founded by the Devil. Its language was so savagely vile that a fellow Christian, and it should all never be forgotten that Luther always remained a committed believer in Christ as Savior and Judge of Mankind, almost hesitates to quote it. But the full extent of the horror that came upon Germany in the first half of the 16th century cannot be understood without. Quote, the popes are descendants of the regicide emperor Phocas, their founder. They are a set of desperate, thoroughgoing arch-villains, murderers, traitors, liars, and the most utterly debased and depraved beings on earth. Therefore, it would be best if the emperor and the estates, for the emperor and the estates, to leave these abominable villain scoundrels and their accursed devils true at Rome to go headlong to the devil. There is no hope for amelioration. There is nothing to be done by counsels. Therefore the Pope should be seized, he and his cardinals and all the scoundrelly crew of his holiness, and their tongues should be torn from their throats and nailed in a row on the gallows tree, in like manner as they affix their seals in a row to their bulls. Though even this would be but slight punishment for all their blasphemy and idolatry. Afterwards let them hold a council, on the gallows or in hell with all the demons. Luther says that he wishes to curse the Pope and his supporters so that thunder and lightning would strike them, hellfire burn them, the plague, syphilis, epilepsy, scurvy, leprosy, carbuncles, and all manner of diseases attack them. Whenever I say, Hallowed be thy name, I am forced to add, Cursed, damned, dishonored, in the name of the Pope. And of Pope. Once again, are these the words of a reformer who loves the Church of Christ and wants to purify it and make it better? Less than a year after publishing these burning words of inextinguishable hatred, a month after preaching against reason, which he called the most dangerous horror that the devil has, Martin Luther died of a stroke at 3 o'clock in the morning of a winter's day in February 1546 after a long session of his obscene table talk at supper. Contrary to a legend beloved by some Catholic, charitable Catholics, he voiced no repentance, made no confession, and spoke no word after being stricken. 
So the great rebel, the man who clothed Krishna in two from his day to ours, went to the church. 